So the recording has started. And again, I want to thank everyone for joining us in the final installment in this series on grants management best practices. And this is specifically on performance and fiscal management. We've so far had a series um, that has been wonderfully attended that focus on grants management best practices as well as um, grant prospecting, grant writing. And um, this, uh, this training will focus on performance and fiscal management uh, specifically around um, how some of our local leaders in um, in our nonprofits will be really just um, helping you better understand and and think through how um, how to best manage your fiscal resources as either an applying organization or a grantee. So I just want to start with um, a quick overview of the introduction here. If uh, Tracy, you want to go to the next slide. I am Megan Cox and I am the uh, division manager for program evaluation and research in the Department of Finance and Budget. Uh, we'll be walking you through um, some of the review from previous trainings as well as um, going into an in-depth look at just a nonprofit budgeting 101 with Liz Weaver from Laws. We will also then introduce you to a panel who is going to focus on grant management across diverse funding sources. And really we're talking about state and federal and potentially foundation resources. But, but what does that look like in terms of fiscal and performance? Um, resources and the management of those. We will then have uh, a Q&A. We will also have an opportunity to uh, work through some questions as we as we are through the presentation. And then we'll just have a series wrap up where um, we will introduce the next set in the series. Um, so this, this will close out our series on uh, specifically grant management, but then we will focus our next one on partnerships. So as I said, please mute your lines as you are joining us. And with that, I am going to turn it over to Tracy to talk a little bit about um, our demystifying federal grants and specifically um, a recap of how we on October 27th hosted roughly 25 nonprofits where Tracy, Barb and I outlined proposal components, typical evaluation and um, other tips and tricks for applying to federal grants. So Tracy. Sure. Um, yeah, on October 27th, um, we hosted an in person. Uh, we shared a proposal components tracker um, that uh, is helpful um, in uh, project management when you're completing a proposal. Um, some main takeaways from that training are that 
Um, every RFP is different, so please read them thoroughly. Um, and different funders um, call different proposal components uh, different names. Um, another main takeaway is that preparation is key. Many of these items can be prepared ahead of time and then tailored to specific proposals. Um, another thing that came up in the workshop is that consistency is really important. So if you're tweaking language in these documents, it should be consistent throughout the whole thing. And your um, budget also should uh, should match uh, the narrative uh, throughout the whole uh, proposal. Um, and then uh, in the second half, when Barb was reviewing grants.gov, uh, a, a big she talked about that RFP as well. Um, but a big thing that came up was that your organization needs to be registered and current with SAM in order to apply for grants.gov. So just making sure um, before you even uh, go to apply for a federal grant that your organization's SAM profile is up to date is uh, really important. Um, so I think we could share the proposal components tracker link in the chat. Um, and um, we also sent out uh, several of the example proposed uh, proposal components, um, as well as other project management tools, which will be, be available in um, a series wrap up. So we'll summarize the series and have materials for event. Um, but today we'll talk, get more into the budget, um, which is exciting. Um, so I just wanted to know um, if there were any of you who attended the Demystifying Federal Grants um workshop and if you had any reflections to share or if megan and barb wanted to add anything from from that workshop as well and if you do have something to share um please either raise your hand or unmute your line and i do see maddie yeah, do you want to go ahead and share give uh, feedback that i loved that in that um, training, they're really, you covered enough that those of us ready to go into federal grants and go into the software, um, there was a lot of technical training, but then there were still a lot of content for those of us not quite ready at that level. So I wanted to praise and thank you for having a birth of information. Great, thanks. Tatiana? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that like with someone who has no experience writing like and I, I didn't even think about looking at federal grants and uh, like definitely not touching them with a 10-foot pole I felt like really confident coming out of that um that like that would be something that we could definitely try it was very helpful excellent thank you for that I will add my my own comment. I was I was really thankful to see so many organizations attend the the demystifying federal grants because that really shows that there is an interest in not only working through federal grants at so many different agencies, but also um, the importance of figuring out partnerships, which will be our next um, 
in the the series of of professional development opportunities but but really figuring out that you you don't have to have the whole problem figured out that there are pieces of it and partnerships can really help with the bigger picture so um i appreciated those conversations And Deneen said that she learned a lot um, and need to make sure that she signed up to the right systems. Yes, yes, the um, the systems are <laughs> part of just the technical burden of grants. And Barb, um, I don't know if you want to say anything about the systems, but Barb did a fabulous job of of walking everyone through what um, grants.gov was and and sam.gov and how the the two need to sort of connect together we might just do a training on that by itself and i would just add that i would encourage organizations um, even if you're not thinking about applying for a specific opportunity in the near future that you sign up for those uh, federal portals now um, it can be time consuming, it can be frustrating. Um, we experienced a little bit of that last week. Um, so I just encourage you to do it now and then it's done. Um, so it's when you do decide to, to apply, um, that piece of it is completed and you're ready to go. Good advice. All right, anyone else with reflections on demystifying federal grants. Okay, so we'll go on to the next slide. And um, I would like to introduce Liz Weaver, who is the Director of Finance and Grants at LAWS, Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Services. She's worked uh, for LAWS for three and a half years. And in her current role, she manages LAWS grants at every stage of their life cycle. So um, she she goes from the very beginning to the very end of closeout. So um, Liz has a lot of experience with local government budgeting and grant administration. Um, in her 15 year career, she's worked in the city of Alexandria and for Loudoun County. And um, welcome, Liz. And we're looking forward to to hearing more about the budgeting process for nonprofits. Thank you so much, Megan. I'm very happy as well. Um, so this <clears throat> presentation will focus on the fundamentals of um, building and developing and some other components um, of budgeting for government grants. So for some of you that have been um, working in the grants world for a long time, this will be a good refresher. For those of you who are new to government grants, um, I think there will be a lot of helpful information for you. Um, so first we're gonna start out uh, by talking about developing multi-year budgets for grants, then move into um, talking about some various components that you may encounter uh, when you're applying for grants and also administering grants. Then uh, move into uh, creating a strong budget justification for applications. And then lastly, we're gonna talk about um, 
some uh, best practices, recommendations um, for monitoring those government funds once they have been awarded. So next slide, Ari, thank you. Um, okay, so the first slide I'm gonna talk about is developing a multi-year budget. So um, depending on the size of the grant that you're applying for, a lot of federal and state grants require uh, multi-year uh, grant budgets. Um, so first and foremost, and I will echo something that Tracy mentioned uh, earlier um, during the reflection section. So um, all of the RFPs, all of the grant applications, they vary significantly. So it's really important um, to start the process by thoroughly reading in detail the grant guidelines or the RFP. Um, so it's important, um, it's an important first step for developing the budget because it gives you information like, are there grant funding caps? That would um, potentially limit how much money you're able to apply for. Also, it will provide a framework in terms of what you're allowed to uh, apply for and what you're not allowed to apply for, those allowable versus unallowable expenses. It will also set up the time frame, And this is where the multi-year um, budget comes, comes into play. So um, again, every RFP varies. So uh, some multi-year budgets may um, they may have, you know, the first year of funding and then, um, you know, one to two subsequent years of funding they may request budgets for. Um, I'm going to show uh, an example shortly, but this budget, um, the, the grant um, guidelines ask that we put together um, a uh, total budget for 24 months. So we weren't separating it into years. We were just looking at two months worth of expenses um, and then calculating off of that. So, um, so anyway, it's very important to look um, and really understand the, the um, grant guidelines. And that'll give you first the, um, the limitations or um, or it may not have any limitations in terms of grant revenue. So Tracy, would you pull up um, the example that I have and then we're gonna um, go in detail uh, through the different components that you um, may want to think about. So, I'm, um, so if you can scroll down, so this, uh, grant um, spreadsheet. So a lot of a lot of grant application process processes will actually give you a template to complete. Um, so this particular template provides a place for the um, position, for the number of hours, for the salary, um, benefits, and. Uh, I'm actually having a little bit of a difficult time seeing it because I'm doing this presentation on the um, on my phone. Um, all right. So and 
a lot of times it will also ask you to separate it into, um, you know, federal funds versus state funds, depending on the parameters that the grant application um, guidelines give to you. So I think um, a couple of points that I'll just make about this spreadsheet. Um, so I usually start with developing a grant budget based on um, the personnel costs. Generally speaking, personnel costs um, represent the bulk of um, grant costs. Um, so it's important to kind of think ahead about when the grant will start and budget um, what the salary will be um, based on when that grant will actually um, start and take effect. Um, also, it's important to know whether the, um, the grant will allow you to increase um, the funds in out years. So um, if, they, if it is allowable, you'll want to align any increases with um, your personnel policies. So for example, if your organization generally um, you know, structures a merit increase to your pay policies, you, um, if the grant allows, again, um, you'll want to build that into your budget. Um, also, um, and then also you want to just think about um, all of the, to inflate it by um, those percentages um, in each of the out years. Cost of living increase is another example potentially of um, a pay increase that you might want to build into your budget. Um, there's also, if you scroll down a little bit, Tracy, so you can see, I think, fringe under fringe benefits, um, most grants allow you to request uh, FICA, which represents the um, Social, Social Security and Medicare tax. Um, this is a standard percentage, 7.65%. Um, so that is pretty simple to um, calculate and for not only the base year, but then the subsequent years, um, depending on what your grant allows. Um, some other benefits, health insurance, um, uh, disability, some grants allow life insurance, retirement programs. What I'll say here is that it's really important to only include the employer share of um, when you're uh, in your requests because you don't want, for example, health care. A lot of organizations um, have the employee pay for a portion of the health care, and then the, the organization pays for the other portion. If you were to request that 100% of that amount, you're essentially double, um, double counting that portion that the employee um, contributes to and overbilling the grant. Um, so you just want to make sure that you're only including the employer share of benefits. Another thing, um, and Tracy, if you scroll up, thank you so much for your help with this. And you kind of like in the, um, I think it's in the yellow column, you'll see that um, a big part of this process is um, thinking through how much you want of the position costs that you want to actually allocate to the grant. 
And that is dependent on a variety of factors, one being how much uh, you're allowed to apply for. The other factor is that um, you want to make sure that you're only including the portion of the position that will be directly related to carrying out the um, the grant project activities. Um, so that's really important um, to keep in mind. Um, I'm going to move down to non-personnel. So, yep. Okay. So just um, in this kind of this in this example, there's a variety of different um, different ways and methodologies that you can use to calculate non-personal expenses. This spreadsheet definitely requires that we use a uh, unit pricing methodology. So, for example, um, you know, if we're budgeting for um, hotel stays, we need to assume um, an average rate uh, for that hotel stay. And that can be based on, you know, experience in the past year or, um, or what you expect to happen um, in the future um, times the number of actual hotel stays. Um, also, you can think through, um, so again, there's a there's a base year and then there's subsequent years. So in future years, um, you want to think about building in any type of contract increases. So if you have, you know, um, a lease agreement and um, the lease agreement, um, you know, increases by a certain percentage every year, you want to make sure to build that in again, if that's allowable. Um, also, the consumer price index or the CPI can be a good source of um, uh, basing um, a future increase assumption on. It's been very high lately, so um, you know, keep that in mind. But but generally speaking, that's a good a good standard um, to base costs on. Um, also, you can look at what you have uh, spent in prior years and kind of like just think through um, what what increases you've seen and calculate percent increases historically and then um, apply, you know, an average increase rate to future years. Um, so going back to this slide. Liz, this is Megan. Can I ask a question? Oh, yeah. So so I want to just make sure that some of your your personnel costs, I think it, it's just we we absolutely have to be able to build in all of the, as you mentioned, cost of living increase. Um, and then there are also federal guidelines for things like um, mileage. Do you want to talk a little bit about what the federal GSA is and and you know sure. a little bit about how you base those sure so we definitely um use the gsa as a standard um so the gsa um like every every year they set a standard for what um for what vendors and um 
uh, grant applicants are allowed to be reimbursed for, um, for, for, for mileage, for any sort of trips. Um, the GSA, uh, there's, a, there's a mileage standard, there are hotel rates. Um, I know for travel, um, I think it really applies to a lot of travel expenses. And so they set those on an annual or regular basis. And so right now the GSA rate is 56 cents per mile. So when we're budgeting for a grant, um, right now we're just using the 56 cents per mile. We don't really know um, what's going to happen in the future. Um, so we're really like focused on using that standard. Any other questions, Megan? Not at this time, no. Okay, thank you. Can I, can I just oh, yeah. say that to, um, you should check that the IRS mileage rate regularly because they do adjust it. So they do set it at the beginning of the year. Yes. But depending on inflation, depending on our economy, they they do change it. So make sure um, when you're applying and you're you're going to put some uh, mileage in your budget, don't go based on what you thought it was prior. Um, just check it to ensure it hasn't changed. Good point. Thank you, Barb. Okay. Um. So also, while you're um, developing your budget and forecasting into the future for um, future years, it's also important to kind of think about funding priorities while you're doing that. And so it's likely, um, well, I, I shouldn't say likely, um, in many cases, I know when um, I, when I have um, applied for various organizations for grants, they they, um, the funders don't necessarily um, fund the full requests. And so kind of thinking about what those priorities are and how you would um, reduce your budget if you didn't get that full request, that's, that's really important um, as part of this thought process. Um, also, uh, when you're working on um, budgeting, a match is a key component of the grant. Um, application and the grant budget. So we are actually going to talk about that in the next slide. So let's move on to that. Um, so the grant match represents the non-federal share um, or what the organization is uh, contributing to the total project. Um, again, there's uh, a lot of variety in terms of required match percentages and also sources of match. They vary by grant opportunity. Um, one uh, rule of thumb is to avoid using, especially um, when you're applying for um, state and federal grants, because um, many state grants um, are often federal pass-through. Um, avoid using the same match source for two different grant opportunities. So for example, if I use 100% of my salary as the cash match on a federal uh, grant, I cannot use that 100% of my salary as a match on another federal 
grant. That's a um, really important requirement um, that you not do that. Um, so um, there are two types of grant matches, cash matches and in-kind. And I'm gonna do um, comparison on the next slide. So um, a cash match represents uh, the grantee's cash contribution. It's usually um, directly related um, to the actual project. Uh, some potential sources um, in terms of funding source are cash donations. So those costs that are funded with cash, cash donations or non-federal grants um for example i know a lot of um a lot of nonprofit organizations you are awarded the the Loudoun County nonprofit um grant and so that is a non-federal um grant award and can be used as a match um that would be a very good source of grant match for a federal or state um grant so some examples um are administrative staff salaries so you know as um, someone who oversees and manages grants I'm my salary or position cost is related to the project um, but I'm not necessarily directly benefiting um, the uh, our clients um, so anyway some of those more administrative overhead costs um, utility costs related to the project, fringe benefits that are not covered by the grant. So if you're requesting funding for, um, for a particular position, but the based on the funding caps for that uh, RFP, you're not able to fit the fringe benefits into the actual requests, you can include it as part of the grant match. So in kind um, is different in that it's not, it's a non-cash contribution to the project. Um, so I think it's um, helpful to explain it using examples. So um, a, a great example is um, using volunteer hours. So I know that many nonprofits utilize volunteers to really supplement um, their workforce. And so this is a great source. So we're not actually, as an organization, you're not actually paying anything out for that cost, but you're able to, to um, still recognize that contribution um, through an in-kind match. Another example um, that LAWS utilizes um, is donated office space. So we have the Loudoun, um, Loudoun Child Advocacy Center, and um, we apply for a state grant to support the personnel costs. But then ANOVA, because that's um, it's located at um, at the hospital, um, they donate that space to us. So we're able to use that donation as a, a in-kind grant match, which is um, very helpful to us. All right, so moving on to the next slide. And, and Liz, we do have one question. Sure. Um, so one question was, what if you have a working board? Can their volunteer work be used as an in-kind match? 
I would say yes. So moving on. Okay, so next we're going to talk about um, restricted funding. Um, so grant grant funds in general are, um, I would say, in the restricted category. So, and again, restricted means you can only use for um, a funding sort funding dollars for certain purposes versus unrestricted that you can use on anything, any of your organization's expenses. So most grant funds are restricted. Um, so they can be restricted in um, a couple of different ways. The first being that um, there are rules and rest restrictions um, that guide some specific funding streams, um, especially at the federal level. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, laws receives, applies for and receives um, funding through what we call VOCA funds or Victims of Crime Act funds. Those funds are restricted to being used only um, to serve uh, to provide direct services that will benefit victims of crime. So when we're thinking through um, what we're gonna request in a grant application, and we know the source is our VOCA funds, we have to be careful about we, what we actually include in the request. Um, grant funds are also restricted in the sense that you, um, you are applying, so in your proposal, your grant application or proposal, you are applying to use the funds to the funder for a specific purpose. And once you get that award, um, those funds become restricted to being spent only on what you requested in that funding application. So, um, because if you, that um, if you don't spend it on uh, what is in the grant application, you're really in a lot of cases um, in violation of your um, grant contract with the funder. Um, so one way to, um, to address that, so if you have, um, if, your grant funds are restricted for a specific purpose um, and you um, are unable to spend them for that purpose but have another need, often funders will allow you to submit a budget amendment and then you can request, you can formally request to expend those funds on um, a different expense. And so if they approve that, then you're, you're still meeting um, the terms of your grant contract um, and the spirit of the grant as well. Um, so really necessary if there are any changes to go back to the funder and re formally request an amendment. Um, another thing just to keep in mind with um, grant funding because it's restricted, this is a very important um, uh, aspect to just keep in mind while you're developing your organizational budget. Um, 
So $1 of restricted funding does not necessarily equal $1 of unrestricted funding. So even though your budget um, may net to zero, you may still have budget gaps if you have more expenses that are not able to be um, funded with grants. So moving on to the next slide. All right, so we're gonna talk a little bit about um, overhead calculations and indirect expenses. So indirect expenses are those related to doing business um, that are not readily identified with a grant contract um, or that are not um, specifically related to that project but are necessary for the general operations of your organization to support the um, carrying out of the grant activity. So some examples of these would be um, rent and utilities, repairs and maintenance, insurance costs, um, office space um, and equipment, uh, and then also administrative and management salaries. So a lot of funders really like to fund the direct services, but these overhead costs, even though they're so critical to providing the infrastructure um, for, for um, to support the direct services um, are usually not funded. So there are a couple of different ways that um, nonprofit and other organizations um, can go about potentially getting these costs reimbursed. Um, the first is through an indirect cost rate agreement. And this um, would be an agreement that you would develop or negotiate with the federal government. It's a, um, I would say it's a rigorous process that takes um, quite a significant amount of time. Um, you would have to um, who it's made with the um, agency, the federal agency, um, that is your main source of federal funding. Um, and each agency uh, has a different process and a different checklist and criteria for developing these agreements. I believe we're going to send some additional materials out um, in case, um, in case you um, are interested in pursuing that. De minimis rates are more common. Um, they, um, you can be reimbursed for up to 10% um, of costs. I know some of the applications that we've applied through through, through the state um, allow us, um, allow this as an, as an option. Again, um, I think we're going to send out some additional um, resources on that because it's a very detailed process. As I mentioned before, it can also, some of these overhead costs, their use of, to support your grant project can be used as a source of match. Um, all right, next slide. Um, so the project justification, um, so should be concise. Um, it should be um, really provide the story behind each of your itemized budget components. Um, it should be in the same order as your um, budget that is 
probably usually on some type of spreadsheet um, or chart. Um, it should be um, very clear, easy to read, and really help you kind of um, the funder navigate that chart that you also provided um, your budget. Um, it's really important, just these are some reminders to follow the grant guidelines to ensure that all of the budget um, budgeted expenses included in your request are allowable. Um, if they're not, they will just they will just take those out of your requests and then um, they don't substitute anything. So it's really important um, to make sure any um, any budgeted expenses in your request are allowable. Um, it's also uh, important to include justification and funders really like to see um, how each expense is directly related to um, their goals that they set out in the RFP. So um, also expenses should be reasonable um, so like if, if you're requesting some sort of equipment, for example, a laptop and you say you want to, um, you're going to spend $5,000. Well, that's probably not reasonable and they, um, may, uh, adjust it. Um, also, um, just make sure to give very detailed, um, explanation such as the, um, calculation. So um, that is really important. They usually ask for that. So one example, our, the, your hourly pay rate times the number of hours that the position would work on the grant activity or um, uh, mileage. So the federal mileage rate times the number of miles that um, you expect the um, of travel that you expect for that grant activity. Um, and then lastly, but probably most importantly, all of the numbers need to match in both the, um, you know, the spreadsheet or the chart um, where your budget um, is laid out and also um, in the project justification. So next slide. So monitoring um, government funds. So, um, so hopefully you apply and you have a very strong application and a strong budget. Um, the funder funds you, you're awarded those funds. It's really important um, to monitor and manage those funds um, with a lot of care. So the first, and this is a very um, basic concept, but very important. So you should be tracking any sort of grant-related project um, expenditures and revenues separately from your organizational budget. So that could mean that you track them on a spreadsheet just to make sure that you're um, appropriately um, appropriately um, outline or keeping them separate from your um, just regular budget. So you can see what you've actually um, spent down on that grant. Um, we at LAWS do monthly reconciliation to ensure that um, we're accounting for um, expenses and regularly being 
uh, reimbursed. So we do very detailed documentation um, for our grant files. Um, that's one purpose, but then also we are consistently preparing for the audit that we will have um, at the end of our fiscal year. So we, um, to give you an idea of the detail, we have, um, you know, we usually include spreadsheet um, that shows exactly how much of the position costs are allocated to the grant, and we provide the actual math um, that happens there. We include timesheets. We include, um, uh, in some cases, depending on grant requirements, we include um, pay subs for those as well. Um, for any non-personnel related expenditures, we include every receipt for every expenditure. So um, on a monthly basis, we make a list of all of our expenses and make sure we have a receipt for each of those that backs it up. Um, so I just described our invoicing and request for reimbursement. Um, so those, again, those monthly reconciliation and invoice really helps us to um, make sure that we're regularly requesting on an accurate basis those, um, those uh, the amount that we should be reimbursed um, for grant expenses. Um, so that we're, we're not billing everything, you know, at the end of our fiscal year. Um, I also talked about the detailed documentation that's so important that also really helps in um, quarterly, semi-annual or whatever type of um, reporting requirement there is with a grant. Um, uh, it's, it, helps uh, really understand what um, what you have spent during a specific time frame um, so that you can communicate that to the funder and, and what impact um, those expenditures had um, on, on your program and on the community. Um, and then lastly, um, it's budget amendments are a great tool to help in case you do have vacancies or you do have things that you that, you know, the environment shifted and um, you no longer need the funds for one reason, but you could really use them um, for another purpose. They are a great tool for that. Um, that concludes my presentation. Thank you, Liz. That's that's a lot of information and I think is really useful. Um, to to just be able to think about some of the tips and tricks, especially when it comes to something like budget amendments. Um, those are huge. And, you know, in some places they're called change orders or or whatever you want to consider them, depending on the agency. And it's really um, it's really imperative that the funding agency is kept in the loop with all of those. And so I know that's Law's experience as well. Um, one, one question we do have is, um, are there any helpful ways to track restricted funding on a quarterly basis? I assume that's what QB means. Um, In Val, QuickBooks? You may wanna... Is that QuickBooks? Oh, it might be QuickBooks. 
<laughs> there we go. QuickBooks. Thank you. Yeah. So we we track um, all of our grant expenditures and revenues. Um, we we track them on a monthly basis or actually pretty much on a consistent basis um, as they are expended in QuickBooks using the project function. So that's a little bit of a technical QuickBooks thing, but um, we are able to isolate those expenditures and revenues assigning um, a project or a customer to, um, to, to each of the expenses. And I am also happy if someone, um, yeah, I'm. You can send out my contact information if someone wanted to walk through the very technical aspects of that. I'm happy to talk yeah, to that person. That's fantastic. Thank you. Any other questions for Liz? And if you are unable to see the chat, you can also just unmute your line and ask your question. All right, thanks, Liz. We really appreciate that. And, and we may ask you back for a lot of detail <laughs> on the very um, just in-depth process that you have to go through for, um, for federal grant uh, budgeting and financial processes. So we appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. So next on the agenda, we actually are going to be hearing from our panel. And with us today, we have um, four panelists from three organizations that you may be aware of. Um, they are um, very well known in the grants world and also in Loudoun County for being leaders in human services and um, grant making as well as grant seeking. So we will be hearing from Jennifer Smith, who is the director of U.S. programs for InMed Partnerships for Children. InMed's a global organization working to build pathways for vulnerable children, families, and communities to achieve well-being and self-reliance. So welcome, Jennifer. We also have Andrea Eck uh, from Northern Virginia Family Service, and she's worked in the nonprofit human service field for 25 years, 20 of which have been with NVFS. She's held several, several positions from direct service to executive leadership, administering programs for individuals and families and low, with those with low incomes in Northern Virginia. And Andrea is now the executive vice president for programs. Um, she serves in a critical leadership role for key areas of strategic planning, program development, quality assurance and grants administration. Also from NVFS, we have Anna Shermeyer. And she's been with NVFS since 2018 and currently serves as the Director of Grants Administration. She's responsible for the oversight and management of the agency's government grants, as well as contracts, and serving as a compliance resource to assess, elevate, and manage agency workflows pertaining to grants administration. Anna also has experience authoring and guiding the development of grant proposals for private, local, state, and federal grant opportunities in collaboration with program. Um, staff, finance, and leadership teams. And last, we have from Women Giving Back, Nicole Morris, who is the Director of Women Giving Back. She currently serves as Loudoun County's, on Loudoun County's Housing Advisory Board, as well as the Vice Chair for LHSN. So, um, 
Nicole has been working in the homeless services field for over 20 years and has a decade of experience with a variety of federal and state financial tools such as CDBG, HOME, NSP, ESG, LIHTC, project-based, and other housing subsidies. So huge thank you to the four of you for um, working through some of the questions that we've prepared. And so what we will be doing for those in the um, audience is we will go through with a um, brief organizational background, and then we will open up the panel for discussion. So we're going to start with Jennifer, and um, we will be talking through NMED, then we will go to NVFS, and then Women Giving Back, and we have a, a series of questions for the panel. So Jen, you want to go ahead and Will do. Good morning, everyone. Um, I am uh, honored to be here talking to everyone and representing NMED. Um, I am the director of NMED USA, as Megan said earlier, and you have a slide in front of you about NMED um, Partnerships for Children, which, as she mentioned, is a global organization, which is why uh, we have quite a few federal awards, um, even before, uh, not necessarily associated with the USA programs, but um, in, in our affiliates in South Africa, we um, have funding through USAID and several other international funding um, grants in our affiliates in the Amazon in both Peru and Brazil. And so um, I kind of walked into federal grants having the benefit of this infrastructure at InMed that had been managing federal grants for a long time. So our director of development is based out of Texas and um, she had managed the USAID grants for quite some time before we applied for the CARES Act, which was sort of my first foray into the federal world. Um, and now of course we're in ARPA. So, you know, the, um, we had though, however, um, had our DSS grants and CDBG grants um, for our Healthy Families Program for many, many years, uh, gratefully, <laughs> before I came. So we had, this, we had this infrastructure in place that made it sort of, well, which it was great training for me, frankly, because, for having this infrastructure. And so, uh, next slide. So this is my uh, organizational staff here in the USA, and who should really be on there um, is Mary Lynn Lasco, who is our Director of Development, as I mentioned, based out of Texas, and Kristen Callahan, who's based out of Seattle, who both do work plans and track our federal funding because we do have to track our infrastructure and those indirect costs, um, quite, which are very detailed. And um, they already had this infrastructure in place of how we document everything, which made things a lot easier for us uh, during the pandemic federal uh, relief money. I think that's it. <laughs> no? Yes. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> and we'll go to Andrea and Anna. Thank you, everybody. We appreciate the opportunity to be here with you this morning. Um, so, um, and and thank you, Anna, for helping me <laughs> make sure we cover everything. 
Um, so here's uh, just a little bit about Northern Virginia Family Service. Um, uh, I will say that Northern Virginia Family Service operates programs across Northern Virginia, as the name would imply. So we have um, local, state, and federal dollars that support programs in Arlington, Fairfax, Loudoun, Prince William, Alexandria City, and the the, the cities there therein. Um, and we have a number of federal awards. We have a number of state and local awards, some of which are federal pass through, as I heard somebody mention um, earlier. Uh, even though your your awards may be coming from the state or local level, your grant agreement they are often passed through um, federal funds. Uh, just to give a little idea of the um, uh, the scope of the organization, so we have you know um, just under 350 uh, staff across the region. Um, we have an organizational budget of 35 million. I will say that about about two or three million of that is in kind. So we have a substantial um, uh, substantial amount of food resources that come into our hunger resource center uh, in Prince William County, and then of course volunteers and other um, in-kind donations. Um, but I'll tell you of the of the roughly 32, 33 million dollar cash budget, about 67 to sometimes 70 percent of that is local, state, and federal grants. So it's a lot of government money uh, in terms of management, um, just to give you an idea of the, the scope. Um, and then the rest of our funding is um, private and corporate foundations, individual giving, and we do have some programs that um, uh, that generate program service fees. Uh, so our our foot in the government granting government grant space is is pretty pretty big. Um, Anna, anything I missed? Anything? No. Yeah. Great summary. <laughs> Thanks. All right, great. Thanks, Andrea. We'll go to Nicole. Hi, good morning, everyone. Thank you for having us. Um, we are a much smaller scale than my uh, colleagues that went ahead of me, um, but we are local. Um, Women Give It Back provides clothing, um, and we serve the whole greater Washington, D.C. area. So we do receive some federal awards from Fairfax County and Loudoun County as well. Um, some of the awards we've received are CDBG through Fairfax County. We've received ARPA from both. Um, and when I first came on board in 2016, it was completely a working board um, and they have not gotten their feet wet on the grant portion of it. And um, the data was what we needed to collect to get ready for writing grants and applying. Um, so we've come a long way. Um, as far as the organizational um, uh, grant funding. Um, and we have a staff, a lean staff of seven, um, including myself. And let me make sure. And then our budget side is uh, about, our budget size is about 747,000. Um, that does not include in kind. That brings us almost to a $4 million organization because we have. Um, we receive a lot of donations of clothing, diapers, and then we have a huge um, volunteer pool um, that provide a lot of the labor at, in our facility. I think that's it. Great, thank you. 
And so before we get into the standard questions, I've already written down a couple of questions just from your brief um, summaries of your organizations. And one theme that I'm already seeing or hearing from, from the four of you is the amount of data that you're collecting and the way that you use the data. Um, so, so for InMed, what I heard is there, there's not only federal, state, but also international funding. NVFS, Andrea, you mentioned 67 to 70% is state and federal um, grant sources. And then Nicole, when you came on in 2016, data is what you really needed. So can, can each of you talk just a little bit about the need for accurate and timely data, but then also um, in what ways you can translate that? um to to some of your other either funding sources or some of your other needs i'll jump in first if you don't mind uh, because one of the most and i'm it tell me if, if i'm not answering your question but um one of the most uh helpful tools that we use um is called we call it the roadmap sometimes the matrix but we um we map uh all of our funding sources for our indirect as well as our direct program costs. And this helps us not double match um, as uh, I think Liz was talking about before, like if my salary is a match for something, it can't be a match for something else. And a lot of, uh, I mean, so our budget slide showed a $4 million budget, but it, um, in, in actuality, it's a $21 million organizational budget with a lot of it being in-kind donations in the Amazon. And so, the, but those are only specific to international programs. And so, I mean, it would seem like we have match for days, but what we do is, uh, I mean, isn't this just a basic spreadsheet, the matrix, um, with our, all of our expenses and personnel down the left and all of our funding sources across the top and where everyone is funded and what matches for what. And then again, uh, the same thing in our program expenses. And, and that, helps first of all i i can see gaps right like if i you know and i can match it up to my program budgets and say oh, okay uh we currently have seven thousand dollars a month funded in program expenses but unfortunately i have ninety five hundred dollars a month that i need and so that's uh that it's really easy to see that way but also to see what is funded where and so especially when one program has multiple funding sources which you know most of them do that I think that kind of data of tracking what is what is being built essentially to each grant and funding source and what it, it, the match is on that like that's the that's the best data for me for the in terms of finances of course there's other data matrixes that we use but for the financials and the budget that's the most helpful so that we're not um, double dipping or looking for resources where I have gaps in other places and those kinds of things. Okay, great, thanks, Jen. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll jump in real quick and Jennifer touched on, uh, there's lots of data, right? We all collect lots of data and there's finance data and there's grants management data and there's personnel data and there's programmatic data. And so that's where my mind went was to programmatic data. Um, and so we use um, a variety of different data 
management tools across the organization. We have an enterprise-wide system, and then we have some systems that are required for use uh, by, you know, funding sources. So, for instance, in our early childhood uh, education program, so we are, we have Head Start in Arlington County, and then we have Early Head Start um, in um, Arlington, Loudoun, and Prince William. But it's our biggest federal grant. It's about almost $9 million a year to operate. Um, and we use a system called COPA uh, that is not required, although early childhood education requires that you use a an approved system. So that's the system that we use. Um, and all of the client level data gets entered into COPA and then the team is able to uh, meet the reporting requirements of the funder so we can pull the data that we need in order to submit reports on a quarterly basis, monthly basis, whatever it is, annual basis for refunding applications. Um, and what's important about that is that at the end of the day, you know, the goal of Head Start, one of the goals of Head Start is that kids are ready for kindergarten. And so at the end of the day, what Northern Virginia Family Service can say is that, you know, 93% of the kids that we serve in our Head Start program are ready for kindergarten. And whether you're reporting that because you have to, to a federal grant entity, or you're telling your donors or you're telling your story to your stakeholders, that data is really important. Um, so again, Jennifer covered one piece of data, which is finance, there's program, and I'm sure there's there's tons of others. <laughs> Nicole, what you got? Yeah, my my mind went to programmatic as well. So uh, and it it's been it has been a challenge. That's the the four letter bad word in our office. Um, um, to to some staff, I love I love it. Um, you know, it's been hard because a lot of the times we want to report out outcomes and impact, and um, we are based on referrals. The majority of our program is. Um, from referrals from partners. So we are able to track the data as far as like the numbers we served um, and who referred them, where they live. And and that's important, especially with us, because we're we're applying for grants from multiple counties um, that we're able to see the uh, the ratio of, of of programs that we're serving in Fairfax versus Loudoun. Um, at first, it was a little lower in Loudoun because we didn't have as many human service partners um, in Loudoun County. So we are serving a higher volume of Fairfax County residents. Um, so it's important to, and it, I also like to see the data because then you can see where the trends are. There might be some kind of the environmental factor that happened in a certain zip code that we're receiving more referrals for, or a new shelter um, what, you know, came online. Um, so looking at that um, also helps us figure out where the needs are as well, um, and that helps our funders as well when they're going out to um, push out uh, more grant funding. Um, you know, they they love seeing that information that what, what we're what we're seeing. It might not be something that we're reporting on, but we're communicating in our narratives of our grant reports. Mm -hmm. And Megan, one thing I'd add across the board for all um, data is just the need for documentation of everything that you do when you receive any kind of public funding, whether you're being audited by the funder itself, a programmatic audit, or you're required to get a single audit based on the amount of funding that you receive that's federal. 
document we're going through ours just the request for documentation at every level to show how expenses are being encumbered to show how data is being tracked and who's responsible for tracking that data and just having those processes documented as well as the information that you're getting from those processes is, is just very important to always have documentation. Thank you for that, Anna. I can't reiterate that anymore. <laughs> um, in my previous job, we said if it's not documented, it's not done. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, that's extremely important. So thank you for making that point. Yeah, that's a really good point. And Liz, I know that you've been, um, I'm not going to put you on the spot as much, <laughs> but I'm wondering from law's perspective as well, when you're looking at financial data and programmatic data, in what ways, um, you know, are, are, are these fitting together and, and how does that tell the story? Well, I think, um, so we, we have a lot of client data that um, we capture in a state system that we're required to input. And I think um, that data really drives um, our need for resources. And so we rely a lot on um, that data to show how much um, or at what level of service we we need to increase to or, you know, what additional resources um, are required to serve the amount of clients that we're seeing. That has been um, particularly important during the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. All right, so are there, um, so as we start moving into some other questions that we have for the panel to consider, we are going to take down the, um, the PowerPoint presentation so you can see our panelists a little better on your screen. And we do have some questions for each of them to consider. These questions were provided in advance. And what we'll do is we'll walk through them pre-award, post-award, and then close out so that you get the chance to hear from each of the organizations sort of um, how they are putting some of the uh, resources that they use um, into, into implementation, as well as have a chance to, to answer your questions. So as we walk through each of the questions that we've prepared, please go ahead and write your questions in the chat. Also, we'll have some time at the very end to go through and we can unmute lines as necessary. But, um, you know, please put them in the chat as you think of them. So the first question that we have is related to the pre-award. And this question is for um, Anna and Nicole. How do you manage programmatic alignment and capacity when considering a funding opportunity? Sure, and I'll get started. Um, you know, I think one thing, I think just as a foundational piece that was very helpful for us is um, we did spend a lot of time reviewing requests for proposals that were archived, that were expired. Um, you know, typically when a proposal comes out, you have two or less months to understand the requirements, to prepare a competitive proposal and submit that application. And if you're looking at federal opportunities, that's typically not enough time. And so we did spend a lot of time reviewing um, old notice of funding opportunities that had 
the purpose of them really did align with some of the work that we were doing because it allowed us to understand things like what are the programmatic elements that need to be included in a proposal? Who's eligible for funding? I know this is a future conversation, but what partnerships are required in order to do this work? Um, and that really allowed us to understand the scope of what we'd be entering into when we started applying for these opportunities. So that's my first recommendation. Go into grants.gov. You can search by archived opportunities. Um, and then you'll be able to see full opportunity announcements and then see the programs that were awarded funding to see how you align with the work that they're doing. That's just from, from a very foundational piece. But I would also say one of the tools that we use is a decision-making matrix when you think about programmatic alignment and capacity. And looking at capacity, both in terms of the capacity to prepare an application and the capacity to carry out the work. So this is just an example of a decision-making matrix where we have a number of factors listed across the left-hand side and then some different areas in which we, we measure ourselves along those factors. And so from a capacity standpoint, one of the most important things we consider is with the time that's allowed to us, do we have a, the capacity to prepare a competitive proposal? And like I said, two months, while it seems long, that's 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 typically the longest we've had to prepare federal proposals. That time passes very quickly. <laughs> um, and so we, we have to think about do we, you know, people who are in charge of the program, do finance staff, do the people writing the application all have enough time to complete their various elements to actually prepare the proposal? Um, in terms of post-award, when we think about the capacity to do the work, um, with what we have especially found during COVID is to consider not just the ability to deliver services, but the ability to meet financial and programmatic reporting and monitoring expectations. So do we have, do the funds that we would request from this opportunity, will they also allow us to build the infrastructure to meet all of the requirements of the grant? So during COVID, we were administering a lot of direct assistance, and with that came a lot of financial and programmatic reporting that <laughs> required a very heavy infrastructure when initially, you know, we were very much focused on the programmatic delivery and administration of those funds. So just something to consider from a capacity standpoint, what are the extras beyond just delivering services? Um, from a programmatic alignment, there are a lot of different things that we look at. Um, one thing I recommend is, sure, you have the notice of funding opportunity that lists the expectations, but you can also find additional information on agency websites to really understand. Um, each agency has strategic plans. You can look at what their ultimate goals are for the work that they're funding and being able to create and draw the alignment between the work that we're doing and agency goals is really important. Um, you can also look on SAM.gov. They have federal agent agency listings that will provide specific metrics for each funding opportunity as well. So when we talk about program data, if you're building a logic model, you can see what their deliverables are and make sure what you are capable of doing aligns with those deliverables. Um, another thing in terms of capacity is, can we clearly document the need in our community um, for this funding and 
can we show that we have the experience and credentials among our staff to meet that need? And also that we have a track record of meeting that similar need in the community. So I, I think that's another programmatic alignment. And then the final piece I would mention is partnerships. Um, there are a lot of things that we do as an agency and we cannot do all things. And so instead of assuming that we will continue to add new programs and services, we also spend a lot of time thinking who are our partners in the community and are there opportunities to apply collaboratively for these opportunities? And if so, can we do some of that work ahead of time? So we're not trying to scrunch that in to that two month window either. So those are just a couple of considerations, but I do find the decision making matrix pretty helpful in thinking through some of those areas. Great, thanks, Anna. Nicole? Anna covered everything that I wanted to say. Um, yeah, a good vetting process. And I think I think um, there is that time crunch when the awards announced to, to when you have to apply, but there is a lot of historical information, like Anna said, you can go research that award, that particular award a year ago to see what the requirements were. Not too many things change um, within a year period. Um, so really looking at the reporting requirements and you have a whole year to get ready and get some of those, um, some of those measurement tools in place, some of those policy and procedures in place. So really you're not um, feeling that, that crunch um, when you do get awarded, you already have. And a lot of it is really good best practice to have internally. Um, you know, some, you know, we try to do things to match a lot of the restrictive federal funds, just so that way we know that we're doing things that when it comes up in the audit that we already have some of the control measurements in place. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, even if you wanted to go a little deeper, you know, CDBG is a lot of that funding your sub recipient. And so they actually have whoever your grant manager is, they actually have their audit review process or their site visits, what they're looking for. So you can go and look at exactly the checklist that they're going to be looking at and have some of those things already put in place. Great. Thanks, Nicole. And and actually, the next question is for you, um, Nicole, as well as is, is thinking through um, considerations for smaller nonprofits. Uh, how can you kind of reconcile um, collaborative partners, different roles, demonstrating your capacity to a funder when you're a smaller organization? Yeah, that it's very it's a challenge for sure. Um, and I think we heard this at the last training from several nonprofits that capacity is a huge issue. Um, capacity just right in the grants, capacity managing it. Um, so you really have to be super intentional um, before you apply on what's what who's going to do what. Um, I think it's great to highlight your staff's expertise. It might not be related to the job they're doing now, but it might be something that they did in a past um, uh, nonprofit and highlight in that. I think somebody had mentioned that they had somebody that just went and reviewed staff's resumes and updated mm -hmm. their experience, their certifications um, before applying for grants, and then really leveraging your board expertise um, as well. You know, if you're missing that internal financial accountability um, from a staff, um, if you have a board member that's a CPA, you know, add them to, to, to the project, you know, that as another control 
um, measure as well. Um, and then also highlight in other outcomes from other awards. You know, you've managed successfully uh, another CDBG or home project um, and highlight that, that you've, you've been awarded and you've been rewarded. So, you know, you are compliant. Um, so that they look at, they look at, um, at your, um, your expertise in that area as well. And then we talked about partnerships and collaborations. Um, we partner with almost 300 programs. Um, so we have been very intentional about now more MOUs in place and partnership agreements and how we work together. I know we just put one in place with NVFS um, and that, you know, the, a lot of the shelter clients will receive clothing here. And then we have a special days when training futures comes to shop. Um, so they love to see that collaboration between organizations and also, like Anna said, research who they have funded in the past. Um, and then show if you have a partnership with that organization, you definitely want to highlight highlight that. Yeah, that's great. That's really important, especially highlighting successes from similar grant opportunities. That's that's a huge one. Um, and then leveraging staff expertise. I think that's really important to to not only think about the resumes and also just the specific licenses that may be required to complete some of the services. You know, it's really important. So <clears throat> the next couple of questions are related to the post awards. So as you start setting up your programming and start setting up um, the the implementation, one question that we do have, and, and actually there are two questions, Nicole, that are kind of back to back to you, but others, please feel free to jump in from the panel. Um, how do you adjust your internal monitoring uh, to scale up for government funding? So especially as as small, smaller nonprofits may want to to go into federal funding, what, what might that look like? Um, I guess, uh, again, the planning ahead of time and researching these requirements that are, are going to be eventually best practices for your organization. Um, you know, there there are so many depending on what the project is. You might have vendors that you're working for that you're going to have to manage. You, you know, you might have certain restrictions on materials you can buy, you know, with a lot of housing and community development projects like you know, steel buying in America is is a priority. So really doing your research on what the requirements are going to be to make sure it's going to be um, feasible for your organization. Um, and then also, you know, making sure your environment is pretty controlled, like you don't have one person managing, you know, the reporting, um, you know, submitting invoices, paying contractors, you really want some um, controls as far as um, and designation areas of responsibilities kind of you know evened out you don't want one person because it creates more issues with fraud or possible um, abuse or misuse of the funding so um, and then you want to hold staff accountable or whoever accountable to their duties as well um, because what can happen is it gets back onto the one person's plate and then you have an issue um, there. Um, and then establishing controls and communication with vendors. Um, it might, you might need payroll. Um, 
and payroll reports or documentation. So establishing a timeline um, for when you need those those things by, and just constantly monitoring risk. Um, it's always a good idea to like even before the start in the middle and then at the end always monitor what could have went wrong, um, what did go wrong, and then how we learn from that uh, is huge. Yeah, that transparency is huge and goes mm -hmm. a long way with funders. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I would add, um, you know, I think everything Nicole said is yes, and it lines very much when you think about any whether you receive an award directly from the federal government or it is through a pass-through entity, you have you have to meet the requirements of uniform guidance. And so um, a lot of these, the basis for internal controls and risk assessment and monitoring are outlined in uniform guidance, which is the 2 CFR 200. And so while it is a hefty document and a lot to read through, it does provide you that foundation of the type of things you would need to consider. I would also recommend um, you can find online, just search for grants management policies and procedures that various agencies have that can provide you with some foundation of how they've interpreted uniform guidance and have put that into practice at their agency. So that can just give you a launch point to consider what some of those controls may need to be. But um, that is the basis for everything that you have with federal awards. So it's, it's certainly a good starting point. And I'll just add one last comment. Sorry, go ahead, Nicole. No, no. Uh, well, real quick, I don't think we touched on the financial um, part of, for small nonprofits and how it could affect them is the payments, um, how you get the award. It might be dispersed quarterly. Um, is that is, do you have enough cash on hand to make it through um, through that period? Um, and then also the audits might be different. They might have a requirement for a more expensive audit um, and that might not be covered in your your overhead or your administrative. You might not be able to recoup that with the grant award. So you have to weigh that out as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the thing I would add is that like, for Northern Virginia Family Service, building up the internal capacity to, to do this, like there's accountability in HR, there's accountability in um, IT, uh, finance, programs, quality assurance. Like we didn't always have Anna's role of director of grants administration. We, you know, they're building up the capacity um, to be accountable for local, state, and federal dollars takes time. Um, it doesn't happen overnight. And so the other sort of advocacy plug I would make here is, and I, I probably am preaching to the choir, as a nonprofit human service providers, when we talk about our indirect rate or our administrative rate, and we're told it's too high or we're not we're not giving enough to programs, is to push back on that because all of this work is not covered by the direct program costs of a grant. So let's be clear about what it costs to run our business in a clear and transparent and accountable way and and not shy away from conversations about administrative rates and indirect rates and and be honest about what it takes to to run our businesses 
Yeah, I think I think all of those are really um, important points, especially about the actual or true cost um, and how you can kind of build a smaller nonprofit to fit um, some of these capacity issues. So those are all great, um, great pieces of just feedback and expertise. Um, the next items, we've sort of touched on the best practices versus practical management. Nicole, did you want to say anything more about just maintaining programs, practical management versus best practices? Yeah, I mean, I think some of the best practices probably we use on a daily basis is just making using that calendar too, mm -hmm. um, to, to when and, and giving yourself enough time to receive documentation from other parties or departments um you know making sure you can get the payroll reports on time and that you have time to go and do or whoever's managing the reporting has time enough time um in case there's any roadblocks um especially if your staff is lean um and then good internal communication with your colleagues um and whoever's helping with this uh this uh reporting and management of the program or project and then just a good centralized documentation system too. Um, you know, we always have that, that if I get hit by a bus, like, will you be able to take over? You know, that sounds very bad. <laughs> will you be able to take I call over? Time. Win the lottery and, and retire yes, early. Win the lottery. I like that one. We have to win the lottery, not to hit by a bus. Uh, no. Having, yeah. having uh, you know, it's a central location where anybody can access it. And then utilize some of the tools that you might already have in place, like QuickBooks. I know they just came up with a new tag feature. So you can tag uh, expenses um, and, and tag it based on the awards or, or project that you're working on, um, looking at your payroll system and how you can manage that if you need job codes put in um, for each person to manage their time towards a project. Great, thank you. All right, so the next question that we have is for Andrea and Jennifer. Um, we, we sort of started touching on site visits, audits, reporting. So especially when you may be working with diverse funding sources or across federal and state agencies, you know, how do you manage or monitor each of these um, areas, audits, site visits, reporting, um, from an agency perspective or from your organizational perspective? What does that look like? Go first, Andrea. Sure. Uh, yeah, I think, again, I would say that the infrastructure to do this takes time to build. Um, so we have, uh, we have sort of maybe um, somewhere in the middle between a decentralized and a centralized process for auditing, auditing, monitoring and reporting. Um, and this is, you know, largely from a from a programmatic perspective. So as I mentioned earlier, we have a number of data management systems and at the individual program level or the service area level, staff are responsible for data entry and then program supervisors or managers up to directors may be reviewing and approving and um, signing off on reports that are being submitted. Um, and then we also have an agency view of data uh, where we you know, may look every six months or every year at sort of a macro 
um, macro level data across the organization. Auditing is auditing and, and compliance is sort of done the same way. So um, we typically we would get a notification that an audit or a monitoring is going to happen at the programmatic level at the at the local site level. Um, staff will, um, you know, program management staff or directors will work to pull all of those pieces together. What do they need from HR? What do they need from finance? What do they need um, uh, from quality assurance? What do they need from across the organization in order to prepare? Um, you know, obviously, when we have the time, we may do the internal audit just to to know what we, you know, know, um, know anything we need to know before the auditors show up if there are any issues or questions. Um, but uh, so at the site level, at the programmatic level, folks are, you know, preparing and uh, organizing their their audits and their uh, compliance monitoring. And then all of that information, we're, we're going to begin to use our grants navigator tool, um, which, you know, is is one of those infrastructure tools that we've been able to add over the last couple of years. Grants navigator um, is a tool that allows us to track uh, a lot of uh, components of our um, grants and contracts lifecycle. Um, so we'll begin to use Grants Navigator for the compliance and auditing as well and have our Director of Quality Assurance have that macro oversight of where have all of the audits and compliance monitorings happened throughout um, program areas over the course of the year. What are the corrective action plans that we need to submit, if any? Are we, how are we tracking on following up on those? So it lives, the, the accountability and responsibility lives both at the individual site or programmatic level, um, but we also have a macro uh, view to sort of what is happening across the organization. That also gives us the opportunity to look at, you know, themes or trends um, uh, where we might have to consider additional training for staff, um, uh, where we might need to consider additional competencies or, or capabilities that are needed throughout the organization. Um, so we we have, again, both that, that micro and that macro view when it comes to audits. And again, this is um, focused on the programmatic. We have our financial audit, which happens you know, in the finance department under the leadership of our CFO, we have HR audits, which happen, you know, obviously in the HR department, but I've very specifically focused on programmatic. So I would just, um, I would kind of link the questions together of what Nicole and um, Anna were talking about in terms of at the pre-award stage, like we haven't talked a lot about work plans or logic models yet, but um, where compliance and audits and all of that really are born are at that stage where we come up with the work plan and train everyone that's actually implementing it at a program level on that work plan um, because uh, that's where, uh, where, in my experience, we get in trouble. Like you can't go back and find out the compliance of, you know, like the where you started in this program and 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 track the data that you never collected. So, um, you know, I the the there's systems that we have to have in place, as Andrea was talking about in HR and finance and all of those. And those are kind of um, 
across the board, similar for most audits and compliance look-sees, but at a programmatic level, making sure that you're following the work plan, that the day-to-day -day staff are tracking what they have said they're going to track and uh, implementing all of those. That kind of compliance data, I think, is um, where we have to take a lot, we have to take into consideration our capacity when we're going after grants because that no one can, well, unless you have a, a specific data tracking person, which would be awesome, <laughs> right? But it's usually the, the line staff that are, that are tracking the work plan. And so, you know, there's no, there's no worse feeling than Q1 comes around and we're like, okay, so where's our, you know, pre-program uh, survey of, you know, of the clients before they started and the staff are like, what? You know, so I guess uh, that I would say, you know, well-planned is, is, is the best practice here and well-trained from the start is what you're going to really want to get through uh, any kind of audit or compliance um, monitoring and having that in place. Like it's all about the systems, right? So um, staff that are going to be implementing it have to have input on the work plan and logic model when you're actually writing the grant application because they're the ones that are going to say there's no way we can track that. And we actually learned that as a lesson when we started implementing mental health programming because, you know, some of the things that, you know, trying to get input on that is not easy. Like we had we have people crying when we're asking them, like, where where would you rate your mental health on one to ten after the pandemic? And but you know, figuring out how we're tracking it and what our work plan looks like and and how we're going to track that is the first is is your first uh, first step in making sure that you're compliant at the end of the year. And then that way, you know, most I mean, it's great if you if you do well. I say it's great if you're reporting every quarter, <laughs> not everybody would agree, but at least you don't, if it's twice a year or even once a year reporting, like there's nothing worse than that feeling at the end of the year where you haven't tracked it all the way through. And that audit, that compliance, those compliance questions, like that's your worst nightmare and nobody can get you out of that. So I guess, I guess mine, my response on that is a cautionary tale of doing the work upfront to make sure that you have what you need before you ever get to compliance. Jennifer, you're not alone. We've all been there. <laughs> and, and um, you know, Anna was talking about the, t the turnaround time on grants. This is mm -hmm. another reason why, you know, both Nicole and, and Jennifer and Anna have talked about planning in advance. Mm -hmm. And there have been plenty of grant opportunities, you know, uh, uh, private, federal, government, whatever, where we've decided, like, we're not ready for this for a number of reasons. Like, we don't have the capacity. We don't we don't have the right partnerships in place. And it can be really tempting because you're you're trying to meet community need. Right. So, mm -hmm. you you know, you can do the work, you mm -hmm. know, your organization can do the work. Um, but to Jennifer's point about, you know, checking in with the direct service staff, the people who will be implementing the project at, at the front lines. Um, you know, having them be a part of the planning process, having them have input on the outcomes, um, challenging yourself to really think it, you know, this would be awesome to do, but can we really do it? And and sometimes saying, no, we, we can't do this right now, but here's how we're going to prepare mm -hmm. um, to do it next year. And we've all been, 
we've all, I know it's been recorded, but I'll say it anyway. We've all been there like, <laughs> oh my gosh, we didn't collect that data or we didn't, you know, we didn't really, you know, push ourselves to think about, was this possible? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I've been the line staff person earlier in my career who looked at my supervisor and said, you said we would do what? <laughs> like you said we would collect what? Like, do you know what that looks like? So it's 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 <laughs> lesson learned. But whenever I I had to look at them and ask, okay, can we <laughs> do this? So, but that you know, com like compliance, all the grants, uh, federal grants, fortunately, mostly required the same kinds of things. So, you know, it's not it's not unusual. Um, data collection for you know income requirements or whatever that gets you it's that individual program data so i hope that was helpful very much and i think so. on the post award side one thing we've instituted just recently is actually a checklist as we're reviewing our contracts because while there is a lot of similarity there are a lot of interesting things that get thrown in that we need to be aware of and it, and when you think about reporting requirements or monitoring you know you those have to be acknowledged and whether that's in the contract itself sometimes it's in the notice of funding opportunity um you know reviewing all of those materials we've been awarded grants over a year after we've submitted them. So to think that anyone actually remembers the requirements from when we submitted is, is not reasonable. And so having this checklist that documents for everyone involved, programmatically, financially, administratively, what we need to be aware of. And if you get a reduced award and you have to change the deliverables, making sure that that's all very clear is something mm -hmm. that we've started doing on the post-award side so that it is front and center in everyone's mind as we begin to implement the project. And I think I'd just like to add too, because I know NVFS is in multiple jurisdictions too, is try if you can try to keep your program goals aligned uh, based on jurisdictions, that will make reporting a lot easier and your outcomes and, and your measurements in line um, across different grant awards it will make it a lot easier that you can go and just segment segment that data based on um, on the jurisdiction. Yeah, and we've, we're doing a lot of that. I mean, foundational work like um, I think, Jennifer, you mentioned the logic model, like starting there because you not only might you have multiple funding sources, you could be in different jurisdictions, but also one program could have multiple funding sources. And so I think Nicole, this is maybe what what you're saying as well is like if you if you keep your your outputs and outcomes sort of at that at that programmatic level and then regardless of the funding source, everything's aligned and it does. So you don't have like one program with different outcomes by funding source. That's right. That no. will certainly <laughs> thank exactly. you. Yeah. All right, so shall we move to close out? I think there's uh, there are two questions that we have for close out and then we'll open up for um, questions from the group. So the first question that we have, Nicole, this is for you. Discuss how you address some of the close out requirements. 
um, specifically funder requirements, and are there processes that you document as a standard practice at your organization? Um, well, the closeout process is really just a summary, a recap of the year. And if you've been doing everything, um, all the requirements uh, during that timeline accurately, then it shouldn't be um, a, a, a hard pro time to get through the closeout. So you already have a documentation of maybe your first three quarters, you're finalizing the fourth and the full year. Um, and so I think this is an important time where you where you should not be communicating any challenges. You should have already communicated what other challenges previously, um, you know, whether you couldn't have, you did not make an outcome. Um, you probably already saw that trend happening. Um, so you wanna make sure that, you know, you are very transparent before the closeout process. Um, so you're just summarizing everything. Um, you're making sure all your files are in place as well. If it's paper files, you have documentation on everything, all your financial reports are closed out. And um, a lot of times it could, depending on the time of year of the grant period and the time of year when you close out your own financials, it can be, that can be tedious um, if your grant year does not in line with your organizational calendar year. Um, and then really just like debriefing with staff, like what worked well, um, you know, were we pulling our hairs out with this? Do we want to reapply? You know, maybe the out, what we projected didn't um, quite make the mark. You know, what was the reason for that? Um, so really having that internal like vetting process to see, do we want to reapply again? Um, and then leveraging what we learn, like, you know, this really went well, we're just going to make this a best practice um, throughout all of our programming and practices um, internally. Um, because I think that also, you know, and making sure that the goals were in line with our organizational goals for that year too. And a lot of that too is prep work in the beginning of our year is just really kind of setting out what our priorities are um, and then and then looking for funding that meets that priorities rather than trying to shift our priorities to meet funding mm -hmm. um, is is really important. Yeah, I think that's a huge that's a huge um, just message is to to focus on the capacity of the organization and the organization's mission versus tailoring the activities and the projects to the funding source. That's really, really important. And Jennifer, were you gonna say something? I think you're off mute. Oh, I'm sorry. I just didn't mean okay? to be off mute. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just nodding at Nicole. That's right, that's right. So <laughs> don't chase the money, find the money that chases you. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's really important. Um, and so the last question that we have for closeout is um, for Andrea, but but really anyone can can answer this from the panel. How do you transition staff after a funding opportunity closes? I think this is especially important for smaller organizations, but also for larger organizations who have multiple programs, right? Um, so what's your staffing plan for continuity or project-based work? What does that look like? Yeah, I would say that that that's right. I mean, this is one of those things that impacts your organization regardless of size because 
as a larger organization with so much government funding, all of that funding is restricted, right? So it we don't have the ability if, you know, if a if a large government contract were to end, I don't have the ability to just move, you know, staff to another project that's, you know, uh, with unrestricted funding. So we do have um, many of our programs are programs are not typically single singularly funded or if there's a contract or grant that's supporting the majority of the expenses, there is some other uh, some other funding that's also supporting it typically because the indirect is the indirect rate is not you know supported or the total cost to run the project is not funded by one single source of funding mm -hmm. so multiple sources of funding the the more diverse your funding the more secure the program and the intervention is going forward to everybody's point a second ago so that your funding um programs based on community need not on funder priorities, right? So, so, so we try to diversify our funding and increase the availability of unrestricted funding. So as projects sort of normally come to an end or a close, we can continue a project if it's still needed, regardless of that funding source. <clears throat> so a couple of things that we've done in recent years because sometimes programs come to an end and sometimes they need to come to an end. Like sometimes the the need has changed. Um, so it's not just about the funding source ending or a contract ending. Um, so a couple of things that we've done over the last couple of years is build in either with our funder or with unrestricted funding is the capacity for uh, retention bonuses. So we've had a couple of larger projects over the years where we there was a planned end. Um, either we were transitioning the contract to somebody else or, again, the useful life of the program had ended or the, the community need had changed. Um, so we built in retention bonuses that are, you know, scaffolded to keep people um, employed and engaged in the program all the way up to the end so that we could have um, that, uh, you know, really intentional close out process that Nicole was talking about. Um, and also to deliver the services right up to the end, which is, you know, often what is needed. Um, we've also we also have um, in in planned endings. We have we always give staff as much notice as humanly possible so that they can begin to make you know plans for their own transition. Uh, we share internal job postings and encourage people to in, uh, apply for jobs internally. Um, we share information about vacancies and job endings at the programmatic leadership level so we can, everybody is aware, I've got this new uh, role beginning, I've got this role ending. Um, and we've even, um, you know, on a couple of occasions, worked to support staff transitioning out of a project with uh, some specific training or, uh, you know, resume support, coaching, mentoring, that sort of thing, um, as they prepare to, to look for something else, whether it's internal to the organization um, or external. So, you know, we, I think we, um, we, we try to consider, we always want to keep our talent internal to the organization, but that's not always possible. Um, so I think we try to do what we can to um, minimize the impact of that transition on the, on the staff. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good feedback, especially I like the idea of a retention bonus sort of being built in. That's that's huge, because often what you see is, you know, the last six months of a project or four months of a project, um, if it's not well established, staff are are nervous, you know, it's their livelihood and their their family situations and and having something that hoaxes them or at least entices them to stay to the end of the project is really huge. That's a that's a really innovative way of doing it. All right. So are there any questions? That was the last of our standard questions. Are there any questions for the panelists from the group? You can just uh, feel free to unmute yourself. Please introduce who you are and the organization you're with and go ahead and ask your question. Oh, maybe we've explained everything perfectly. <laughs> it's a lot of information. It really is a lot of information that we've provided you today. Um, so I actually do have a question, especially related to um, the the sort of battle of inches that we're talking about. This is something that we we'd mentioned in the demystifying federal grants as well is is the importance of looking at community need but noting that you can't do it all as one organization so really what you're talking about is you know the community need that you can describe as an inch at a time almost and and, and what that could look like so so i'm wondering you know if if any of the panelists want to talk about what that battle of inches looks like for your organization in in a proposal, because what we often see, especially in human services, is there's so much need. How can you distill into something that's doable within a three year window? And how does that look when you blend and braid funding? You know, I'll take a stab at that because this is something that Imed really wrestles with because, um, you know, uh, I'm sure Andrea does as well, like rather than being a single focus organization like clothing or food or, you know, like we we serve a certain population that has needs across a lot of organizations, you know, a lot of organizations are focused on a particular thing and our families need help from all of those things. And so, but I think that what what we have done at InMed is look at what we particularly do that no one else does. And, you know, for us, it's that all of our staff are bilingual. The majority of them have their own immigration stories. And so, and then our Healthy Families Program, which has been in, in operation for, you know, over 25 years as a, in the community home visiting program has given us like that, immersion into the community that um, gives us that that really you know I mean it, we know the needs of the community because they're coming to us for it, this particular community and so you know it, uh, during the pandemic we didn't intend we had never had like a um, an information and referral type of of service because there's you know Loudon Cares a lot of places do information and referral, but our families came to us because they knew whoever answered the phone spoke Spanish 
and they also knew that whoever it was would help them register or explain what a service did or, you know, those kinds of things. And so it wasn't a service we intended to provide, but we were providing it all the time. And then we realized, you know, that it was such a huge barrier for the people that we we served. And so, and that's not the only example, you know, um, when Andrea was talking about like how to transition people when the their project ends, one of the things that we do is that several of my staff work across programs, right? And so uh, while each program has multiple funding sources, which helps, they also have multiple focus. And so they're not just working in the after school program, they're also doing mom support groups or they're also do, working in the STEM program. And, and so, you know, that, um, that kind of immersion again, like we, ha we have certain skill sets. The people that work here have certain skill sets. They have connections in the community and our partners are, it's almost hard to distinguish sometimes what's our partner and what's InMed. Like several of our staff, including me, attend St. Gabriel's Church. So is something St. Gabriel's or is it InMed? It doesn't really matter unless we have restricted funding for it, right? And the same thing goes with Loudon Free Clinic and a place to be. Like because we we don't share staff, but we do a lot of programmatic things together. And so, you know, I think we have to, we huddle when we're looking at that and saying, okay, in this big problem, like mental health, teen mental health, looking at who all is doing that, meeting with them and saying, okay, what does InMed do that you don't do? And us focusing on that um, because each of us wouldn't be in existence without that expertise and focus. And so, um, you know, that's, I think that's how we have been most effective in doing what we do without spreading ourselves too thin. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. That's a good synopsis, Jen. <laughs> and um, just with the last couple of minutes left, if you do have questions, we will be, um, you know, happy to send those via email to the panelists if there are additional questions, knowing that there are only a couple of minutes left and in the presentation, I do want to make sure that we get through some of the other slides. I just want to thank everyone who's presented on this panel and Liz for for really just providing us with a lot of information that that often, you know, is is communicated in different ways, but not in a forum such as this. So I really appreciate you opening up your your expertise and your organizational tips and tricks and providing some of this feedback and this this advice to other organizations. So thank you for that. I, I really appreciate it. We all really appreciate it. So um, next, I just want to share a little bit about our series wrap up. So this is the concluding session for our grants management series. Um, and we've gone through um, multiple training opportunities to provide um, a little bit of just grant management and administration expertise, as well as grants prospecting, um, financial and fiscal resources, performance resources, as well as um, helping to organize some of the components 
for the grants management process for federal and state grants. Tracy put into the chat, and she'll be sending it out also via email, um, the, the uh, session evaluation, and also the series evaluation will be coming um, along with that. So we would like to hear your honest feedback. We wanna make sure that these sessions meet your needs. We also are planning two other series. The first is partnerships. So that will be happening um, in the spring. So that's going to be a multi-session event that um, is similar to this in format where we do have some in-person opportunities, some online opportunities, and then um, some panels. So be looking for the sign up and registration for that opportunity. And then, Tracy, do you want to go to the next slide? Oh, <laughs> and Tracy's plugging. Please do the evaluation. Yes, we will be looking for this. It's really important that we have the feedback from the group, um, not only for each of the sessions, but for the series. This, this is something we really take seriously, and as part of ARPA, is really important to be able to say this is or is not hopefully is making a difference in the way that you're thinking about grants management. So, so we would appreciate the feedback. We also um, would like to, you know, invite you to sign up for Loudoun County Nonprofit Updates. This is something that the county is moving to as a subscription service. So uh, there are nonprofit updates um, in the newsflash section of the blog. And this is, um, an update that can provide you on a regular basis with information on what the nonprofit community is doing, as well as Loudoun County, um, with regard to nonprofit grant opportunities, to um, working with nonprofits, to grants that may be uh, a county nonprofit partnership. So please go ahead and, and sign up. Um, as you can. So you go ahead to the next slide, Tracy. She has highlighted all of the um, the steps to go in and actually find the news flash. And each of these will be listed in your um, in your PowerPoint slides. So as I said, please, please, please fill out the evaluation. And um, again, we just appreciate you being able to join us, participate with us, and to our panelists, thank you for your expertise in this, um, and thank you for your ongoing commitment to Loudoun County and the services that we can provide um, to, to our most vulnerable populations. So thank you all, and have a great afternoon.